The passage for this evening is Ezekiel chapter 28 and verses 1 to 26. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord. Because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas. Yet you are but a man and no God. Though you make your heart like the heart of God or of a God, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Because you make your heart like the heart of a god, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you say, I am a god in the presence of those who kill you? Though you are but a man, And no God, in the hands of those who slay you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz and diamond, diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of the fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways, from the day you were created, till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end. And shall be no more forever. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your faith towards Sidon and prophesy against her and say, Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her and manifest my holiness in her. For I will send pestilence into her and blood into her streets and the slain shall fall in her midst by the sword that is against her on every side then they will know that I am the Lord and for the house of Israel 
There shall be no more a briar to prick or a thorn to hurt them among all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they shall dwell in their own land that I gave to my servant Jacob. And they shall dwell securely in it. And they shall build houses and plant vineyards. They shall dwell securely when I execute judgments upon all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. We pick up Ezekiel tonight in chapter 28. Now there's a fair gap between where we were last week in chapter 16. Uh, So I thought it would be helpful for us to do a very brief overview of where we are and a look at the bits that we've missed out. Um, Now, if you remember, we are sitting, if you like, with Ezekiel on the Kabar Canal in Babylon. We are with the first lot of exiles from Judah that have come over to Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar 605 years before the birth of Jesus. And these exiles are the sign of God's judgment over the sinful nation of God's chosen people. And eventually, and while the exiles are in Babylon, we're going to see in chapter 33, and Robin's going to be speaking on past that next week, we're going to see the news that gets back to the exile that Jerusalem, this great city of God, has finally been raised to the ground by Nebuchadnezzar. Utterly burnt, laid waste by the might of Babylon, and nothing but a few peasants remain of God's chosen land. And so the question over the whole book is this. Is God going to be with his people? There is no temple to worship in. And soon there will be no land to inhabit. What of God's promise to his people? And as Andy has been reminding us, in the first third of this book, from chapters 1 to 25, which talks specifically about the judgment of God over Israel, God has been weaning Ezekiel and the people of God off the temple. Because God wants them to know that he is not confined by space. God himself shows, if you remember, in vivid imagery of being in a mobile throne, dressed in all his might and splendor and glory and power. He has the freedom to move around the universe. He is not trapped in a wooden box or in a specific land. And he is still working on behalf of his people. And tonight, as we move on to chapter 28, we move into the middle, the second section of the book of Ezekiel for the first time where we move away from judgment over Israel to looking at God's judgment over the nations around Israel. And in so doing, we are moving away from God weaning his people off the temple to God having to wean his people off their dependence on these powerful nations around them. And that is where we come to the Prince of Tyre tonight. But before we get there... Why don't we pray together before we start? Heavenly Father God, we thank you for these incredible passages of your word. Lord, we pray that you would be with us tonight. Please, Heavenly Father, may your Holy Spirit be moving in our hearts. Lord, may we be sobered by what we read. 
But Father, may we also be incredibly excited and wonderfully grateful for the incredible gospel of your wonderful grace. Help us, we pray, in your mighty name. Amen. Now, as you'll see, we have three points. Our first one tonight, God is telling the exiles, guys, when you return back to Judah, don't trust in the power and wisdom of the nations. Now, here in chapter 28, we have this prophecy and this lament, don't we, over the prince of Tyre and over Sidon, which is, which is Tyre's sister city, if you like. We have a mighty prince over a beautiful city who is brought to incredible judgment. And chapter 28 is, if you like, a, a summary chapter of what is happening over chapters 25 to 33. Just flick back with me to chapter 25, and, and you'll see... A list of all the nations mentioned that are around Israel, against whom God promises to bring judgment. We have Ammon and Moab and Seir and Edom and Philistia. And here we also see why God is bringing judgment. Just read with me chapter 25, verses 2 to 4. Son of man, set your face towards the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to the Ammonites, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, aha, over my sanctuary when it was profaned, and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate, and over the house of Judah when they went into exile, therefore, behold, I am handing you over to the people of the east for a possession. And with every nation, a similar refrain is spoken of Tyre, our city tonight. We read in chapter 26, verse 2, Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gates of the peoples is broken. It is swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. Can you see what's happening? The nations are mocking small, weak, and desolate Israel. Oh, Israel has been judged, and rightly so, as we saw in chapter 16 last week. But God is not going to allow the arrogant nations around his people to mock them and deride them and think that they're any better. It's not because of them that Israel was judged. And so God is bringing judgment on these nations because of their pride and to show that he is the God of Israel and only he has the right to judge. And in the midst of all these nations that I mentioned, there are two that stand out in heavy detail, and they are Tyre and Egypt. And these two nations are focused on more than any of the others because it was these two nations specifically to whom Israel were always running to for help in times of trouble, rather than turning to Yahweh. And we see this all the way through the Old Testament, all the way from the patriarchs, in fact. The people of God kept fleeing to Egypt. Under the Exodus with Moses, the people of God grumbled constantly about wanting to go back and to to eat the meat of Egypt rather than stay with the God who saved them. And this was the case with Tyre. During the age of the later kings of Israel and Judah, many of them signed peace accords with Egypt and Tyre to help fend off Assyrians and Babylonians. These nations were seen as powerful And Israel loved the power and security that they offered. And the low point of this history was under King Omri, king of Israel, when Omri gave his son Ahab in a marriage of monetary and military convenience to the princess of Tyre, Jezebel. 
who, as we know, brought into the land pagan gods, idol worship, Asherah poles, and ultimately enacted the systematic destruction of all but a few of God's prophets. The turning to Tyre, the turning to Egypt, the seeking after their power and their wisdom became an addiction to the people of God. Until, as a consequence, the people of God were barely recognizable as being distinct in any way from the nations around them. That was never how you were meant to live, says Yahweh, all the way through the Old Testament. You were never meant to flee to the nations in times of trouble. You were always meant to depend on me. I was meant to be your power and wisdom. I am meant to be your king and your God. Not Tyre, not Egypt, me. But the people didn't listen, and so the people were judged. But now it is time for the nations to be judged, and in so doing, Israel is being weaned off being dependent on them as God reveals just how weak and frail they really are in the face of this God. So let's have a look at this Prince of Tyre in a bit more detail. Read with me verses 1 to 5. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the Prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God. Though you make your heart like the heart of a God, you are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Now, you can really understand why people would have marveled at someone like the Prince of Tyre. God confirms that he was, in fact, wiser than Daniel. This is almost certainly the Daniel who is rising through the ranks of Babylon as we speak, known already for his wisdom and his prescience. And because of the prince's wisdom, he has become powerful, he's wealthy, and he's increased his trade. Tyre, uh, the city, was known as the trading capital of the ancient Near East. It was with Tyre that David and Solomon traded for the building of the temple and their palaces. In fact, turn back to chapter 27 for me. And just read the description of the city of Tyre itself. I'm just going to flick through a few of these verses very quickly. Verse 3. O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Verse 5. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. Verse 6. Of oaks of Bashan, they made your oars. Verse 7. Of fine embroidered linen from Egypt was your sail, serving as your banner. Verse 8, the inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your rowers, your skilled men, O Tyre, were in you. They were your pilots. Tyre is portrayed as this beautiful ship, filled with skilled workers and beautiful cargo, ruling the waves and turning heads. And so the Prince of Tyre is her captain, if you like, charting her ways and making her great, godlike, untouchable, mighty, wise, and powerful. And Israel were tempted to love her for it. Tyre and her prince and their wisdom and their power are so very attractive. And God is warning the exiles when you return, don't run to Tyre. 
And so that same word is being spoken over us in this room tonight. Don't seek the wisdom and the power of the world. Because the truth is, like Israel, so often we are very tempted to. What are we as Christians smitten by? What power or glory or intelligence or wisdom or or the spirit of the age are we attracted by? Who is it we're tempted to turn to for our security and safety? Who is it I'm wanting to be seen with, wanting to trade with, wanting to be friends with? Who is it that we're tempted to marvel at in the world and desire to be like? Who do I want to mimic? Like the men of Israel calling God for their own king just to be like the other nations. Because the temptation to run to Tyre is enormous. In fact, I would go so far as to say this is probably our greatest battle we face as Christians, as individuals and as a church. In this day and age, in the strutting pride of secular wisdom and naturalism and materialism and success and progress and acceptance and conformity and power, whereas Christians, we are on the wrong side of public opinion and discourse, are we tempted to seek the power and wisdom of the world in order for us to blend in and be safe? It is so desperately difficult to live up against the might and wisdom of the world. From the playground, where my 18-month-old son is already conforming to the people around him, to the child at primary school who sticks out like a sore thumb because they tell their friends they're Christians and they're laughed at, to the teenager who doesn't go out drinking and sleeping around and are mocked, to the student at university who is ridiculed for her faith in an ethics class by her lecturer, to the man at work who doesn't lie and cheat his way to the top and loses out, to those who sit in the Hammersmith Apollo on a Friday night and hear secular comedian after secular comedian trashing God, making fun of Christianity from the safety net of being right, screaming, aha, over God and the church like the nations were mocking Israel in her weakness. It would be so much easier to give in, to be like everyone else, to be seen as wise and right in the eyes of the world, to be seen as safe. It would be so much easier to be able to reap the wealth and power and security of the world, to have them on my side for a change, rather than remain spiritually distinctive and entirely different and often on the wrong side of the argument. Do you feel that? I absolutely do feel that. Living a distinctive life for Christ in a massive secular world is terrifying at times. And the reason we feel this way is, I think, because we seem so small. And the wisdom and power of the world seems so big and overwhelming and inviting. This is exactly how the exiles and the people of God would have felt. Can you imagine them going back home to rubble and dust and a decimated city the immediate desire would have been to go and cozy up to these these big nations to get some support. So we, in our weakness as Christians in a secular age, may be tempted to cozy up to the world just to feel safe and not so out on our own. And not only that, but the wisdom of the world genuinely seems to work. It is attractive because it doesn't seem to come up against any worldly pressures. 
And it does seem to produce wealth and power and security, just like the city and the Prince of Tyre, successful, untouchable. What we wouldn't give to be like that. This corporate, secular, golden, liberal age is a beautiful ship upon which everyone marvels. And I am tempted every day to get on board. And this is not just true for individuals, but it is also absolutely true for the church. As we know painfully well, the temptation for the church to run to the power and wisdom of the world is great indeed. And heartbreakingly, we have seen that in all its desperation this week in Scotland. And we cannot move from this passage without calling it out. Ian Duguid writes something deeply profound, words that were written 18 years ago. They could have been written yesterday. He says this of the church in his commentary on this passage, Ezekiel 28, and he says these words. The love of power and wisdom can also infiltrate the church. Church leaders or denominational structures can easily be elevated six feet above contradiction whereby they conform to the world in order to feel safe. When a decision is made that goes against scripture, what do we say? We should say, Jesus is king, not the church. And his wisdom is expressed in the scriptures. If the Bible says so, I must believe it, no matter what the experts or the powers say. As Martin Luther put it in his famous declaration to the Diet of Worms, here I stand, my conscience is captive to the word of God, I can do no other. How devastatingly appropriate. Are we as individuals, as a church, captive to the word of God, more than we are attracted to the world? Do we see God and his word as greater than the wisdom and power of the nations? Do we trust in the Bible more than we trust in denomination, more than we trust in church structures? Do we really trust in Jesus Christ and his wisdom, that 1 Corinthians 1, seems foolish in the light of everyone around us? It is wiser than man's wisdom and who is stronger than man's strength. When you return, says Ezekiel to the exiles, don't trust in the wisdom and the power of the nations. When we leave these doors tonight, let us not trust in the perceived wisdom and power of the world. We remain distinctive. Why? Because, point two, the proud and the powerful are going to be judged. And this is where God reveals the true state of the nations. Don't be fooled by appearances, Israel, because look at what is coming to Tyre. Their wisdom and their power have gone to their heads and they have become proud, and so they will fall dramatically. Read with me from verse 6. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of a God, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say then, I am a God? Your fall, mighty prince, is going to be so great, verse 19, over the page, that all who know you among the peoples are going to be appalled at you. In short, exiles of the people of God don't envy the nations. 
To those who are sitting here, don't envy the proud in the world who look better than you, who are more successful than you, who seem to have life sorted. They may look great, they may seem wise and powerful, it may be working out for them, but their pride and their arrogance will bring them down. They will face my judgment, says Yahweh. And just look at this judgment. We see it prophesied in verses 1 to 10, but then we have this lament over the king of Tyre, verses 11 to 19. And I think this is placed here to show us just how great, how devastating, and how tragic this fall will be. We're meant to be looking at the king, the prince of Tyre, and we're kind of meant to be wailing over him. It's desperate. Read with me the language that God pours out over this prince from verse 12. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering and this list of incredible stones. Verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You are blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. This is remarkable language to describe a human ruler. Now, many of you may recognize this as the passage that some people say talk of the fall of Satan. I'm not sure that's that's what's going on here. I think the language here is, is God setting up, if you like, the Prince of Tyre to such a gargantuan proportion so as to highlight his incredible pride and his even greater downfall. And remember what God is doing to the people of God. He is weaning them off their incredibly high view of the nations. The Israelites genuinely viewed these nations and leaders as a replacement for Yahweh in their affections and in their security. And so Yahweh starts off with this overinflated view of the king of Tyre and he pops it. So God likens the prince of Tyre to perfection. He puts this prince in the Garden of Eden as if he was the first among men, just as Adam was. He was wisdom unparalleled. In short, there was no equal. This man was genuinely given wonderful authority and great wealth by God. Such are the heights of this man. And in that light, such is the downfall of this man in his pride. Verse 16, in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. This man could not have been any higher. And his fall, therefore, could not have been any more dramatic. This passage isn't saying that the king of Tyre was an angel, and neither is he in the garden with Adam but it is setting up poetic, dramatic extremes for us to witness and to be horrified by. In other words, oh, how the mighty have fallen. You want to see where pride and wisdom and power leaves these men, says Yahweh? Well, look at where they were. Look at where they were when you longed to be like them, seemingly perfect and untouchable and radiant. And look at where they'll end up. In pits slain by foreigners, appalling to all, he knew them. God has literally shipwrecked Tyre and her captain because of their pride. Don't envy the proud and the powerful, 
Don't put your trust in these proud nations because they're going to be judged. And what of their wisdom and power then? Don't trust in the pride of the world, the pride that says God is dead, the church is no more, we have society sorted and you've got to get on board. It's exactly where we needed it to be. Because the pride of the world is going to be judged. Politics, money, success, power, secular wisdom, philosophy, corporations, it's all going to be gone, shipwrecked in the judgment of God in their pride. But let's be really careful where we're pointing our fingers. Because there's something else going on here. Remember, this is a lament. This is meant to be desperately sad. We're meant to despair at the loss of such grandeur due to arrogance. Just as we look at Adam, the literal first man, and despair as we see the loss of his grandeur due to arrogance. And I think that is what this passage is reminding us of. That's why God uses the language of the Garden of Eden and the cherub. He's likening the king of Tyre to Adam. And who is Adam? He is the representative of the whole of mankind. In other words, Ezekiel, as you speak to the people of God about the prince of Tyre, remind them of the incredible sadness that pride and sin leads to for every man. As it takes humanity from incredible glory to incredible despair. Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The pride of man is the placing of himself on a par with God, which is exactly what the king of Tyre does. Which is exactly what Adam did. Which is exactly what the people of God did. Which is exactly what we do when we conform and trust in the wisdom of the world and in our own wisdom and power. All this pride, all this turning full sail away from the creator God and to our own devices, all of it will be judged. Therefore, and this is important, not only is trusting in the wisdom and power of the nations futile as we see them fail, but anyone who becomes like them in their arrogance and pride will receive the same judgment. Why is it Ezekiel is reading this prophecy to exiles in a pagan land? Because the people of God sought the wisdom and power of the world, overseeking and trusting in the Lord their God. The nations have been judged for their pride, so had Israel. But furthermore, Israel thought they were safe. Often throughout the prophets, where judgment is called over the nation, the, the people of God turn around and say, Prophet, you're wrong. God will not judge us. God will not punish us. God will not take us into exile because he's established his covenant, covenant with us. We're safe. We are too important to be removed by God. When an individual, a church, or a denomination says that, then we are in dangerous territory. Jesus, as we read in Revelation, can remove the lampstand of an arrogant church at any time. Pride is so offensive to God. Whoever we are, whether we're Christians or not, 
For God's people, they presumed on their status and religion, and so they thought they were untouchable in going elsewhere for God. For the king of Tyre, he thought he was literally a god. He presumed on all his status and his wealth, and so he thought he was untouchable. You see what God is doing here? He's revealing over the course of this book the ugliness of both religious identity and false religiosity on one hand and secular power and wisdom and presenting them as one and the same thing. For the religious, I can get to God on my own. For the secularist, there is no God. Or in other words, I am my own God. And the question is, where do we stand tonight as individuals, as a church? Are you rocking up at church, going through the motions, going to a small group, maybe even reading your Bible, maybe even preaching from a pulpit? But in reality, you're trusting in and conforming to the world and its power and its wisdom and refusing to put your trust in Jesus. Priding in your own efforts rather than leaning on Christ. Being part of a church community isn't enough. As the people of God found out, don't stand on your pride. Or are you someone who's never considered God at all before? Let me ask you this question. Are you entirely confident that what you've built up for yourself is going to get you through to life and beyond? Can you absolutely trust that everything that you have built your life on will not be taken from you tomorrow? Because the Bible says that's a foolish thing to believe. Having wisdom and power and wealth, being seen as right and strong in the world's eyes isn't enough, as the king of Tyre found out. Don't stand on your pride, because God shipwrecks the pride. The question is then, what do we stand on? Well, we don't trust in the power and wisdom of the nations, for the proud and the powerful are going to be judged... Instead, we trust in the faithfulness and promise of God, which leads to hope and security. Wonderfully, right at the end of this oracle, we see a remarkable refrain that that has kind of been pitted through Ezekiel, but, but we are desperate for it in Ezekiel. We've been longing for it for ages. It comes in the last two verses, like water to a parched soul, verses 25 to 26. Thus says the Lord God, when I gather the house of Israel from the peoples among whom they are scattered and manifest my holiness in them in the sight of the nations, then they shall dwell in their own land that I gave to my servant Jacob. And they shall dwell securely in it and they shall build houses and plant vineyards. They shall dwell securely when I execute judgments upon all their neighbors who have been treated, who have treated them with contempt. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. What was our question right at the beginning? Will God be with his people? Yes, he will. And God's promise, given all those years to Abraham back in Genesis 12, that there will be a land, that there will be people and a measurable blessing, it has not been forgotten. This passage is meant to be an incredible encouragement for the people of God, waiting small and insignificant in exile in a pagan land. Waiting small and insignificant when they return, sitting in the rubble and ruin of Jerusalem amongst the the jeers and taunts and contempt of the nations. What did they have to hold on to? Nothing but the promise of God. And God has to remove all the glitz of the nations from their minds for them to see that his promise, his faithfulness is so much better. And that he, not the nations, will be their security and will protect their borders and will establish their prosperity. 
Indeed, God reveals this judgment on the nations in order, verse 26, that they will know I am the Lord their God. Even after their incredible sin, their reliance on the nations, their religiosity, their pride, God had not forgotten his people. And he was going to bring them back, and the nations to whom they may have run to are now displayed in all their desperation and failure against a God who is displayed in all his faithfulness and his security. And as much as it would have slowly increased their confidence as the exiles in the Kabar Canal, as they heard the strains of God's promise echoing over them again, so it is of even greater significance and confidence for us who have seen the promise ratified in Jesus Christ. As much as God's promise was fulfilled to these exiles, they did return to Jerusalem in the sight of the nations with Ezra and Nehemiah. So we see it in even greater light in Jesus. As God's people is spread all over the world as the church, the new Israel. In other words, the church of Christ, in the midst of the millennia of jeers and taunts of the world, will survive, and it has. It will be secure. It will stand the test of time. But we are still waiting, aren't we? Peter gives us the name still, exiles. We are sojourners passing through this world, in it but not of it, waiting small and insignificant for God's final consummation of the promise of the new heavens and the new earth, where there will be no more tears or crying or pain, when there really will be, verse 24, no briar to prick and no thorn to hurt. And so in our waiting for Christ's final kingdom, we outcasts and exiles, surrounded like the people of God were by the wisdom of the earth, Surrounded by the hubris of the spirit of the age, when we're coming up against the pride of the world in our classrooms, in our workplaces, on the BBC, even in the church, we hold on to the promise of God, Jesus Christ, who wasn't what the world expected. He wasn't clever. He wasn't an intellectual. He wasn't a businessman or a politician. He wasn't a warrior. He was a carpenter who didn't smite Rome and reclaim Israel as they wanted. Rather, he died a cursed death on a cross in humiliation. What foolishness that seems to be against the might and wisdom of the world. But no, says Paul, what incredible wisdom. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Who do we boast in tonight? Who do we seek for our wisdom and power tonight? Who do we trust in tonight? Do we want to be like the returning exiles in the middle of a worldly storm of power, secular wisdom and materialism, holding on to Jesus Christ? The promise of a faithful God and before the world boasting and trusting in him. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for the wonderful reminder that you are a faithful God who keeps his promises. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for the encouragement this would have been to the exiles. Small and weak and insignificant to those as they returned, small and weak and insignificant, knowing that they could find their wisdom and their power and their strength in their God. Heavenly Father, I pray, I really pray that will be the same for us. Heavenly, Heavenly Father, help us not to stand on our pride, on what we do or our achievements. Help us not to be won over by the glitz of the world. Help us to be won over by the beauty of Jesus Christ and all of his wisdom and his righteousness and his perfection that allows us to stand before a holy God right because of everything that Jesus Christ has done and for nothing that we have done. Heavenly Father, may this encourage us and spur us on, we pray. In your mighty name. Amen.